So, Christian ethics, part two. It's been a little while since I've spoken, but we're going to stumble through this part in, in Romans 12, 9 to 21 over time because I think Paul had a real purpose, and we'll get into that a little bit and then look at some stuff uh, for writing that section in Romans 12. Um, if you haven't figured it out by now, Romans 12 is my favorite book in the Bible. If I only had, if I was on a desert island with only one book of the Bible, I would want Romans. Okay, because it's just a, just a great book. But we're expecting a move of God, right? Maybe even praying for another great awakening. I mean, people tell me there have been two, okay? But there's something coming, and I think it's big. Now, this is not a downer, but obviously, as things happen, we're going to run into opposition. And Christianity, if, if you've been paying attention, is already running into some, uh, some opposition. And that's where we get into Romans 12, 9 to 21, is how do we handle not only the move of God, but any opposition that comes along. Because God gives, through Paul, some very, very detailed instructions on how to do that. And I find it interesting, and uh, since it's been several weeks since I've talked about this, I find it interesting how the different Bibles, you know, they'll, they'll break up the the Bible, and well, it's broken up into chapters and verses, and they'll break up into sections, put a, put some name on it, and so forth. Well, the letters were not broken up; they were a letter, you know, like we used to write that Anna knows nothing about. <laughs> okay, but one of them, the ESV, calls this section "Marks of a True Christian." <coughs> the Lexham English Bible calls it "Living in Love." The New King James Version calls it behave like a Christian. And the one I like is the Christian Standard Bible calls it Christian ethics. Ethics are moral, per, uh, moral behaviors that governs a person's behavior are how they conduct a particular activity. And Christian ethics are, are, are principles that Christians follow as they interact with other people, whether they're fellow believers or not. See, I believe when Paul was writing this, he was saying that, that this is really important to me that we become like Jesus and that we do as Jesus did in a very ethical manner at all times, both in blessing and in suffering. So let me read Romans 12, 9 to 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. 
Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And let me tell you something. If God repays vengeance for something that somebody did to you, it will be a lot worse than what you do. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, so by, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I always thought that verse was funny for some reason. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, Paul is instructing us, followers of Jesus, Christians, that we are to live in a particular way that really is contrary to the ways of the world so that we will relate to all people out of love so we will relate to all people, whether they're believers or, or, or whether they're heathen, in a manner that draws people closer to Jesus. That's what we're about. We're here to build the kingdom of God. Several weeks ago, I started this section with um, the first part of verse 9, let love be genuine, which is possible when we seek our amazing God, when we meditate upon the cross and, 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 and everything that Jesus did, and when we choose daily, hourly, by the minute, to follow Holy Spirit as he leads us. Now we're going to look into an interesting one. Well, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones made an interesting statement about this uh, two-thirds of the, of the Bible, uh, two-thirds of this verse. He said, what a wonderful, what a perfect summary of the whole life of the Christian man and woman. In other words, if you can get down, abhor what is evil, and hold fast to what is good, you will walk a great Christian life. Now, I'm going to quote somebody that's probably not often quoted in church, but a guy named Tucker Carlson. And, But I think he nailed it. I think he hit the nail on the head as to what is the problem today. He made this statement um, in, in, in an interview, I think it was, but I'm not exactly 100% sure. The problem with this world, with this country, is that we are in a battle between good and evil. Now, he immediately said, I'm not making this as a political statement. I'm making this statement as an Episcopalian. Okay? So he was coming, oh, I don't know, you maybe say, say he was uh, making a theological statement or something, but he was making this statement out of his faith that he had in the Episcopalian realm. So I want to start first with the negative and, and just take a little look around this country, this world. Have you noticed that 
God and good are not necessarily at the center of most of what is going on? Or is it just me that, and I'm dis disillusioned? Now, this is going to turn positive, so don't worry about it. But I ask, why not? I mean, this country was founded the way it was founded, okay? Um, yeah, not everybody that helped put the Constitution, Bill of Rights, and all those things together were Christians, there were deists, and other things, but there were godly principles that were woven through the, both documents. And I think this is a, a great question as to why not, but it, it really has a complex answer, but I think it also has kind of a simple answer. The truth is, if you don't follow God, you're going to follow evil. And nowadays, <coughs> you know, I've lived long enough that evil and good were kind of fuzzy, okay? And, and, you know, you've heard the term white lies. Well, there's nothing wrong with white lies, okay? And, and other things. But I agree with Tucker. We are in a war between good and evil. But don't fear. God, you and us, you and me, we, and good, wins. I read the end of the book. We're going to be okay. In fact, we're going to be better than okay. Okay? We're going to be, it's going to be amazing. We're going to be like Jesus. He's the first fruits. We're the second fruits. We're going to, whatever we're going to do. But it's going to be absolutely amazing. But we must know that what we need to do more than anything else is to follow God and not the world. But God. The triune God. It's going back to meditating on the cross, going back to, to thinking about and listening to the Holy Spirit's voice and following him on a, on a daily, hourly, whatever basis. And I believe that as we do, we will find it a whole lot easier to hold fast to what is good. Because as we read this book, the Bible, which is good, then we have something to compare. Chris and I talk about how um, the, there's, the enemy cannot, he absolutely cannot tell the truth. It's impossible. God, on the other hand, could tell evil, but he wouldn't. He won't. And I say that because God can do whatever God wants to do, but he won't because he's good. Okay? And when we cling to what is good, it becomes a whole lot easier to abhor what is evil, which is what we're called to do. Now that word abhor, which is Apostle Gaul, listen to this, utterly, completely and without qualification, hate something to the point that you run away from it, whatever it is. Now, it's not just saying I hate evil. Now, now I want to put a little asterisk here. That doesn't mean that we never go into where there's evil. 
because the light's got to go into the darkness. Okay. But what I'm talking about is the temptation or, or somebody's attacking you or, or somebody's lying or, or you just let your imagination run wild. What the point of the matter is here is we don't want to live an evil life. We want to live a godly, good life. And as we do, we will abhor evil and we will flee. Okay? Now, If we didn't ever go into dark places, like this guy that was with, uh, um, I forget the organization, um, he felt God was leading him to go to Amsterdam, to the red light district, and get an apartment. Well, he was heavily criticized. You know why? Because he had a, a wife and three daughters. And his response was, safest place I can be is where God wants us. Okay, so I, I just want to put that asterisk there that that if you see an evil person or evil, you know, it, look at it first as an opportunity. Share the love of God because the light of the world is so important to us. But we know God is good. I mean, Luke 19, 18, 19, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, only God is truly good. But this is where we're getting into the rest of what I want to talk about today. Have you ever wondered thought about, meditated upon what God's goodness looks like. What I'm talking about is what characteristics, what attributes, what, what is contained in his goodness. There are many different things, but we're just going to look at 11 today, starting with the power of God. And I started with the power of God purposely and going to talk about omni uh, uh, something else a little later, uh, omnipotent, that because I want to drive the point home, because that's what God is wanting us to walk into more and more, is God's power. We, as Jesus followers, I believe with all my heart that God wants to teach us how to walk into his power more and more. Matthew 26, 64. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power, right hand of power, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And Psalm 119, 3 says, we should walk in his ways, which would very much include his power. The triune God is power. You take all the nuclear reactors in this country. You know, there's a, a dam that just bro broke, or, and everybody's blaming as to who broke it over in the Ukraine. Um, and the world, the Europe's largest um, nuclear power plant is being threatened. But that nuclear power plant is like taking a pin and sticking it into this carpet, and that's the power there but the rest of the carpets in the world are the power of God. It doesn't compare. The power of God is absolutely amazing. The triune God is power. Luke one thirty five says, <clears throat> And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. 
Okay, how about you women? How would you like to have that happen to you? In another place, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? See, power flowed out of Jesus when the woman touched Jesus' robe. Why wouldn't that be available to us today? And we can touch his robe through the word of God. We can touch his robe through prayer. We can touch his robe as we meditate upon him, as, as we just sit there and, and, and gaze upon his face and his glory. If you want the power of God, you got to spend time with God. You got to pursue him. Just like, and that's what we're doing on, on Sunday nights with this prayer. Just like, you know, you, you read it in the Bible, and if you've been watching The Chosen, you see it over and over when people are wondering where Jesus is. He's going off to be with his Father. To, because he wants to do what his Father tells him to do. He wants to say what his Father tells him to say so that he can go out. See, power flows out of Jesus and the triune God when we connect with them. I am convinced of it. And in this case, the power of God not only created, it re recreated. You know, you, you hear people pray once in a while. I remember the first time I, not the exact moment, okay, when I heard somebody says, oh God, I just go to, this, to the heavenly spare room in parts and I, I, I pull out a new knee and give it to, to my brother. And I, I went, what? But, you know, why not? He probably did. I, I was just, oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Thank you for reminding me of that. But the power of God, when you connect with God, not only creates, but it recreates. So how do we get that power? Terry kind of alluded a little bit earlier, but I'm going to kind of go over that and add something. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and in the earth. We receive the Holy Spirit at salvation. He's here. He's within us. If you've called upon the name of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit in his power. But God didn't stop there. He came up with this thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Which they were waiting for in the upper room. You know, when they went down in the tongues of fire and people thought they were drunk. But guess what? I think there's more than that. And I went over some of them last time that there's fillings of the Holy Spirit that help us to do certain things. And you can see that all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. So the power's there. question I have to ask myself and I'm just being real honest do I really want it do I really want it it requires a little bit of sacrifice on our part just like Jesus went off to be with the father he was God <laughs> might have to spend a little extra time with, with the father but we have the power 
just as it says in Acts 1a, to be witnesses to the world and to do all that he calls us to do. So we want it. Just like Paul was given the powers, he went out under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, reading from Romans 15, 18, and 19. Now I want to put another little insert in there, and from here to the end of what I'm teaching, I am tiptoeing across the top of the depth of what you can go into. So I'm challenging us to study on our own. But Romans 15, 18, 19, For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, or however you pronounce it, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. We need God's power so that we can go out, preach the word of God, followed by signs and wonders. But God has other characteristics. He has other attributes. He has other things that are contained within his goodness. Because, see, and I, I, I'm doing this, well, first off, I believe God wanted me to, to get into this section, but as, as I was studying this and, and been reading through this, I think it's important to understand what is contained within God's goodness. Or I guess you can put it another way, what makes him good? Obviously, the first thing that makes him good is God. By definition, he is God. He's good. Okay? So I'm going to go through 10 rather briefly, and in no particular order, and it's definitely not the end of the list of things that are contained within his goodness. The first one is immutable. God is infinitely and eternally the same. He never changes. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. And that could be rendered, I am the Lord. I have not changed. I love this. I know that if I go to my father today and we discuss something and I go back tomorrow that I'm not going to meet up with a different God that's going to give me some other different answer and then I go back on Thursday and I meet up with uh, somebody that's in a mood swing okay you get my drift you're going to get the same answer he may expound on it a little more. He may develop it a little more, but he's not going to go send you. I love that. Yes. He's dependable. Hebrews 13.8, what's it say about Jesus? Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. I'll see you. That takes care of it, doesn't it? Okay, the next one is God is omnipotent. He is infinitely and eternally all-powerful. And I have to confess, I put this one in here on purpose because I wanted to hit the power again, okay? Just telling you that. But what did Job say in chapter 36 after everything he's gone through? Look, God is all-powerful. Who is a teacher like him? And that could be rendered, God works loftily in his strength 
or power. Church, the God we serve is not a wimp. He is not a wimp. And I know every person in this room at times have wondered, why didn't you just do this or do that? And what you're really saying is your weakness is showing. But he's not a wimp. Just like Chris prayed up here. He's got a plan. It's perfect. He's working it out. And you fall back on that good old verse in Romans 8.28 that he uses all things together for good for those who are you know, love him and call according to his purpose. He is powerful. And again, his power is available to, us all, to all of us. Another thing that's contained with him is he is omniscient. He is infinitely and eternally all-knowing. 1 Samuel 2.3, for an all-knowing God is the Lord, a God who judges deeds. Now, we serve a God who knows everything. I mean, why wouldn't he? He created it. He created everything, so he would know everything. Therefore, what it's saying to us is there is no issue, no issue that we could ever deal with that we can't go to our wonderful, loving, heavenly Father and he wouldn't be able to give us wisdom and help. Isn't that amazing? The other way you can say that is we are never alone. We are never alone. I remember when Susie passed away, my late wife. And the first words and uh, first thoughts, one of the first thoughts that crossed my mind was, I'm alone. And I heard very clearly, no, you're not. I'm here. And he was. He was. Didn't mean I didn't grieve or so forth, but hey, look what I ended up with. <laughs> Pretty cool. He is all-knowing, and we can go to him in everything. Fourth one, God is omnipresent. He is infinitely and eternally always everywhere. You cannot go anywhere that God is not there. Colossians 1.17 and L.E.B. And he, he himself is before all things, and in him and all things are held together, which means he and his glory are everywhere. Always with us, in us. You know, there, when, when, when back in the dark ages, again, before some of you were born, when I was studying science, there was this thing that scientists would talk about called the Colossi effect. And it came out of this scripture I just read that he held all things together. I don't think you'll hear about it today. Maybe in a Christian college or something like that. But they used to teach that, that everything was held together by him, that he was everywhere, and that he was omnipresent. Number five, like I said, I'm kind of just skipping over these, but there's so much depth in each one of these. You know, that you just think about it, Tim. Meditate. Say, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this, but sometimes I just take something and I just go, Lord, and I read scripture or a word or whatever. I'm so... Please explain it to me. You know something? 
He does. So, fifth, God is wise. Boy, do we need this one today. He is infinitely and eternally full of perfect, unchanging wisdom. Romans 11.33 says, Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. That's why, I, why we always wanted to find God by the Bible. We don't want to define him by our feelings or what we think or our theology. If I define God by my theology, um, over the years of walking with him, and this is my 50th year of walking with the Lord, I would have defined him in many different ways because my theology keeps developing, opening up, getting better and better and better. But God's wisdom is infinitely high, infinitely deep, infinitely wide. It shows up up against human wisdom in a way that is almost embarrassing for human wisdom. That's why we want to seek his wisdom. I, I pray this prayer a lot. I pray that people who are walking in, in man's wisdom, in the world's wisdom, whether they be in the White House, Congress, a governor's house, or a pastor of a church or wherever, that they lay aside their wisdom and ask for God, wisdom. Because guess what? Man's wisdom is folly before God, foolishness before God. God is faithful, number six. He is infinitely and eternally unchangingly true. Second Thessalonians 3.3 says this, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. I, as I was studying this, I ran across this um, thing from A.W. Pink, who, as you, if you as you get as you know me, you know I like the old guys. But he writes and he wrote this about God's faithfulness. God is true; His word of promise is sure. In all His relationships with His people, God is faithful. He may be safely relied upon. No one ever yet really trusted him in vain. We find this precious truth expressed almost everywhere in the scriptures. For his people need to know that faithfulness is an essential part of the divine character. This is the basis of our confidence in him. You can take it to the bank. God is faithful to do all that he said he would do. He will do it. He has our six. Our back. Okay, the next one is God is long-suffering. I don't know if you notice, you don't see the word long-suffering in many of the biblical versions, versions of the Bible today. So I went to the Lexham English Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. <clears throat> and it says in 102.8, or in 103.8 in the Hebrew Bible, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, long-suffering and full of mercy and trustworthy. Our God is patient with us. Do you ever feel like God's patient with you? Boy, aren't we glad? I mean, look how he has put up with us humans. Look how he's put up with me. By his mercy and grace, 
God has been long-suffering, extremely patient with us, willing to walk with us and to help us to change and to go in the right direction while teaching us how to be patient in every situation. Number eight, God is just. God is infinitely and eternally right and perfect in all that he does. Deuteronomy 32.4 says he is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. In other words, that word just is what is being looked at there is a legal decision would find that God, that everything God does provides justice. A legal decision would find that everything that God does provides perfect judges, justice. None of his ju judgments, none of his sayings, none of anything he does could be considered unfair, though many people have called him unfair, but it's not because he is truth. He is the word of God. He is God. Number nine, God is merciful. He's infinitely and eternally kind and compassionate. There is no one more compassionate. Even when he was rebuking the Sadducees or the Pharisees or whoever, it was out of compassion and kindness because he wanted them to see the truth. Psalm 116.5 says this, be merciful even as your father is merciful because God will have mercy on all who call on him. As it says in Matthew 6, 7, God blesses those who are merciful. And as we walk with him, as we talk with him, as we spend time with him, we, it won't take long to understand that we are walking in his compassion and that he has his absolute love for us and that he's wanting us to grow in giving out compassion, even to our enemies. I mean, after all, when did he have compassion upon us? We, we didn't like him. Tenth one, God is holy. He is infinitely and eternally perfect. Revelations 4.8, New Living Translation, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. And there's one commentary I read that says he believes it should say, holy, 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 holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. God is high and above. He is pure. He is totally sinless. He is totally unlike us. And yet we are being created in his image fearfully and wonderfully created in his image and we are being made holy as we go through life here and when we get there we will be like Jesus think about that think about that you will be like Jesus <laughs> I was thinking about that one day I started laughing I went, what am I laughing about am I laughing at you God no and, and I heard him say no you're laughing because you're happy because you're going to be like me. I'm going to make you like me. One day we shall be like him.
God is power. See, within his goodness is contained power, immutability, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, his wisdom, his faithfulness, his goodness, his justness, his merciful and holy. But that's not all because there's also his graciousness. There's his eternality, his impartial um, person that he is. The fact that he's jealous, the fact that he's righteous, his self-existence, his sovereign, transcendent truth and unity among many others. And there's many others you can find throughout the Bible. And I wasn't going to take time to go through them all, but I wanted us to get this picture of God is so good I, I, and so huge. Sometimes I don't realize how big he is. And then I start thinking about how I'm going to be like him. And I go, man, give me heaven. All of these and more are contained in God's goodness. And it's all available to you and me. All available to you and me. So let's stand. I want to pray for us.